Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, this evening, please, to 1 John chapter 5. Last time we were together, we considered the history of what we call the Yohanin comma and why it is that I feel we can have confidence that that comma ought to be in our Bibles, though we find it uh, in no Bible outside of the Textus Receptus tradition. And though even in the Bibles, the commentary Bibles within the Textus Receptus tradition, there are those that would cast doubt upon its uh, existence or its inclusion in our Bibles, uh, yet I gave a historical as well as somewhat philosophical um, argument for why it is at least rational for us to believe that it ought to be within our Bibles and that we can have the confidence in it. Uh, But the two weeks before that, when we were actually in the text here in 1 John chapter 5, first verses 1 through 5, then verses 6 through 10, we were walking through a testimony of Christ within us through the Spirit of God. A testimony that begins when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, acknowledging Jesus to be the Son of God, receiving Him for ourselves, which establishes the witness of God in our hearts, so that beyond just the testimony of the three witnesses that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and those witnesses which uh, bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit... When I believe in the name of the Son of God, I receive a witness in myself through the indwelling Holy Spirit, the one who is the seal of our redemption until the redemption of that purchased possession, the one who is the earnest of that inheritance in our hearts. And this leads us to joy, as we have been studying since the beginning. But it also leads us to confidence. And that's what we're going to talk about today, confidence. But not just confidence in Christ as Savior and my position in Him. That's what we talked about a little bit last time with this idea that we have the witness in ourselves. But then confidence in Christ as mediator and my privilege through Him. So we read today in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 11... And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. On the heels of John's statement that assures us that we who believe on Christ's name have within ourselves a true witness of the person and the work of Christ, John then continues to speak of this witness. He says, this is the record. Now, that word record is actually the same word that we considered in verse 10, translated witness. So in verse 10, we read, He that believeth on the Son of God hath hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not uh, not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. So when he says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath this witness in himself, that word witness is the same word that in this verse is record. You say, well, pastor, why change it? Well, there's a couple of reasons why our King James translators would change the text, would change the, 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 the translated word. In in the text, one of those reasons is because various words might have slightly different glosses that a different English word could cover better than 
that one English word could cover better than another. So it's possible that because of the, the flexibility of the Greek language and the precision of the Greek language and the, the, the translational difference between the languages that the King James translators may have said, well, in this particular reference of that word, Record makes more sense. Over here, witness makes more sense. But it's also very, uh, another reason why the King James translators did this is because if you look in the front of most of your King James Bibles, one of the things that you will find is it says, translated to be read. And the fact of the matter is, in 1611, literacy was not quite what it is today. Also in 1611, the access to Bibles was not quite what it is today. So that it would not necessarily be an uncommon thing, even as you get much further along in history, that the Bible in town would be the church's Bible. And it would be on the front, and that would be the church's Bible, and that would be the Bible in the town. Uh, maybe a few wealthy people would have a Bible, those sorts of things. As the printing press gained more and more uh, steam, and, and, and as, as uh, industry became more and more prevalent, you would find quite a few more Bibles. But the simple fact of the matter is, the King James translators translated the Bible specifically to be read aloud. And when you read something aloud, you need it to flow. And once again, you can create a fairly clunky translation that is significantly more accurate to the text. If you've ever had an interlinear Bible, in an interlinear Bible, you'll find that they do a very literal translation of the text. And it is a very literal translation, but it's also a very clunky translation because it is not glossed for reading. It's glossed for studying. The King James translators glossed our Bibles for reading. And so that, that, that idea that you need to take a word and maybe add a little bit of variation, use a synonym, use another word that gives the same idea or meaning in order to allow the text not to sound repetitive, for it not to get uh, a strained or, or, or confusing or boring, and rather to be able to flow nicely with something that the King James translators valued highly. So when we see here, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. It is that same word witness. So we have this witness, and this is the witness. What is the witness? That God hath given unto us eternal life, and that this life is in His Son. The testimony of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to break the chains of sin, to empower spiritual living, is an indelible testimony in the heart of every believer of the truth of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what John calls this testimony in the hearts of the believer is eternal life. Now, we spoke of this very early in the book of, in the epistle of 1 John. That when Jesus spoke in the gospel of John about eternal life, and when John speaks of it here in the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, we are not only talking, I kind of mentioned it this morning in the songs that we sang that were salvation-oriented or, or, or eternal life-oriented. We're not only speaking of the end of the Christian life when we step into glory and we receive that immorta immortality, we're clothed in immortality. But rather, the idea of eternal life, as Jesus spoke of it and as John references it in 1 John, is intended to be a consistent manner of present living in the Christian life, analogous with the idea of walking in the Spirit from Galatians 5, analogous with the idea of abiding in Christ from John 15. So that while every believer has eternal life by grace through faith, and when they die, they will uh, step into that eternal life proper, only those believers who are abiding in Christ 
are living in that eternal life today, are realizing in the manner in which they're living the fullest potential of that which has been secured for them through the cross. And that is the idea that we find in the epistle of John as it relates to eternal life. And this is consistent with what we talked about in verse 10, that if you find yourself in a place where you are struggling with whether or not you're saved, where you are doubting the validity of your salvation, though you know what the Bible says about Jesus, and to the best of your knowledge, you have received for yourself and accepted Christ's finished work, but you don't, you, you don't feel that way. And, and again, Nathaniel mentioned it this morning as it related to our, our final song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. If Jesus doesn't feel like much of a friend to you, the first place to look for that assurance and that confidence is to inspect your own, own life for fundamental inconsistencies with the scriptures in the manner in which you're living. Where though you are living in the spirit, you are quenching or you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And because you have quenched or grieved the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is not able to live and work through you as he would naturally do. It's not just that God desires this of you. It is that you have been created anew in Christ Jesus unto those good works. God has ordained that you should live in them. And when you are quenching, when you are grieving the Spirit of God, you will not experience the outworking of the Spirit of God in you. You will not bear the fruit of the Spirit naturally. And so you will quench the internal testimony of the Spirit of God in your heart. That witness that we have in our hearts, that is the Spirit of God, will be quenched. Not just the fruit of the Spirit born in our life will be quenched, but actually that internal witness will be, will be quenched in our life. And, and don't be surprised when you don't feel like a Christian when you're not living like a Christian. Can we just put it that way? And the reason why this can be so insidious is because it quenches that testimony of the Son of God in your life. It erodes that confidence, specifically because we know that he who hath the Son hath life, and he who hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's what verse 12 says. This is the simplicity of the gospel. If you have the Son, you have life. This is the record that God has given unto us eternal life and this life is in his son. So that is that confidence, right? That, that, that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his son. If I'm not abiding in Christ, then I'm not realizing the confidence of his son because I don't feel close to the son. I don't feel like Jesus Christ is my friend. And, and the reason why I don't feel that, the reason why I'm not, not perceiving that, the reason why I'm not experiencing that is because I'm at, out of fellowship with the son. So John concludes this thought in verse 13. He says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Notice John's purpose here. And how that purpose corresponds to what he said in chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 4, John said, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Remember that. And now here in John chapter 5, verse 13, John says, these things are written that, uh, to them that believe, written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. See, the things, these things aren't written unto unbelievers to tell them how to be saved. That's not what John is doing here. He says specifically, these things have I written unto you that believe. 
These things are written to believers, right? We've said that from the beginning. I told you way back in message one, two, three, whatever it was. I, I pointed to 1 John 5, 13 and said, see, he's writing to believers. So it's, it's, he's not writing these things to tell people how to be saved. That's the gospel of John. He's already written that. He's also not writing these things to warn believers about losing their salvation. That's a concept which, as we've talked about many times, is wholly foreign to the scriptures. He says, these things are written to believers that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Confidence. That you can have confidence in your walk with the Lord. That you can have confidence that you are connected to the Son. That you can have confidence that you're right with the Father. That you can have confidence in these things. That you can live in that knowledge and so have fullness of joy. Because who has fullness of joy but the man who has eternal life? And I hope that this series has done exactly that for us. It has drawn you to a place of determination that you would draw near to God. A place of loving relationship through confession of sins, through determined abiding, through consistent obedience, through loving the brethren, through all of these things that we've been called to do. And that it has made you more joyful and made you more confident in your walk with Christ than ever before. But tonight we draw upon this concept to go even deeper. Confidence that begets more confidence. Because that's exactly what confidence does. This is exactly what the life of faith does. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. That when I exercise faith and the Lord comes through, He shows Himself faithful. This gives me more confidence to exercise faith the next time. So that when I come to a, a trial and I say, I'm deciding in myself, am I going to trust what God has to say on this? When I have a backlog of God's faithfulness in my life, it becomes much easier to trust that he's going to do it again because I've seen him do it time and time again. That's that Psalm 37, 25 idea. I have been young and now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. And when at once we are able to trust God's intentions toward our eternity, we are then able to trust God's intentions toward us in other avenues of life when you are at once able to trust God with your eternity and live by faith in that trust and so live out the reality of God's expression of love toward you in your life as you obey Him, you love the brethren, then it allows you, it gives you the confidence to expect, if you will, other things of God as well. So we read in verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So John writes here of a second confidence that you and I can have. This confidence is broken down into two sub-ideas. First, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And second, if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So John represents the nature of the Christian walk through the concept of prayer here. And the reason is perhaps quite simply because communication is the foundation of a relationship. 
whenever I go through marriage counseling, whenever I work with a, a new couple or an old couple, whenever I'm working with anyone as it relates to relationships, the first thing we talk about fundamentally is communication. Communication is foundational to a relationship. If my wife and I do not talk, we are not going to draw near to each other. We are not going to stay near to each other if we are not communicating with each other. The whole of our consideration of 1 John 5, and really uh, most of 1 John in total, has been about graduating beyond just securing my eternal state and instead living in the power of eternal life today, living in a confident relationship day by day, the fullness of joy today. And that state of fullness of joy is not just rooted in the abiding confidence that I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. It's not just rooted in the abiding confidence that I will one day be in heaven. That state of fullness of joy isn't just about the future implications. It's about the present implications of my Christian life. It's about the today of my Christian life. And to be quite honest, while I would like to think that just having 100% certainty, having absolute confidence that I am in Christ, that I am on my way to heaven, would be enough to give me consistent joy throughout my earthly days, that no matter what I'm experiencing at any given time, in any given place, in any given circumstance, I'd just say, well, I'm on my way to heaven, so I'm good. I'm, I'm joyful. While I'd like to believe that I could do that, that's not really how it works, is it? Because life is still difficult. And life is the, thri- the thing which confronts me today and for the foreseeable future, if God is merciful, this present life will continue to confront me. I may go home tomorrow to heaven, but... The plan is that this, this life is going to confront me for a while longer. And this is what John speaks to next. That once I have the confidence that I am in Christ, the life of one who in, in, is in Christ is not just about hope for tomorrow, but as the great hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And that strength for today is rooted fundamentally Christian in prayer. If the scriptures are how God speaks to us, quoting another hymn, what more can he say than to you he has said? How firm a foundation is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. Then prayer is how we speak to God. It is the mechanism that God has designed by which we seek aid, Assistance, insight, wisdom, understanding, and strength to accomplish the tasks that God has laid before us. To handle the things that life will ask of us, that we will be confronted with in these days. And while relatively speaking, there's not much teaching directly in the Bible about what prayer looks like. We do get some, we'll walk through most of it tonight coming through the teachings of our Savior and a few of the apostles, we do certainly have a great deal of recorded prayers by which we can learn much about prayer. We're not going to go to many of those recorded prayers. We're going to go to the teachings on prayer. But my goal with this reminder, with the remainder of our time this evening, is twofold. The end goal will be to help us understand the confidence that John speaks of that draws us into fullness of joy. But first, I want to talk about prayer itself, as Jesus describes it, as the apostles describe it. 
and in doing so, draw the links necessary for us to find that confidence that John speaks of so directly. So we read in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13, where Jesus says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye shall have, ye have need of, excuse me, before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for forever. Amen. So here we have a series of teachings from our Lord on the nature of prayer. Now, this does not mean that there is no, uh, and, and, and as he speaks through these things, uh, he, he focuses in initially on personal prayer. But we, we understand that this does not mean that there is no such thing as corporate prayer. Number one, we see corporate prayer all throughout the Word of God. But we are also given an indication of this in the text itself. Jesus said in, in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, And when thou prayest... Those of you that know my teaching on the King James and the nature of pronoun usage knows that when we find a thee, a thou, or a thine, it is a second person singular pronoun. Jesus is speaking to one person. And so when Jesus is saying here, when thou prayest, speaking to a singular person who is praying, this is a personal prayer. And he says, when thou prayest, don't be as the hypocrites, they love to pray standing in the synagogues. Instead, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut the door, Pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But what's interesting is this. In verse 7, when Jesus switches to the Lord's Prayer, I guess I can back this up so you can see it. In verses 5, when thou prayest, notice that, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enterest into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Notice verse 7. But when ye pray. We have switched from second person singular to second person plural. Jesus is now speaking to a group of people. When you are praying in a group, in corporate prayer, Use not vain repetitions. As the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking, but, not, but be not ye therefore like unto them. That, that pronoun switch tells us that we do see also corporate prayer here within the scope of this idea. So there is a time for your prayer closet where you're not announcing yourself in prayer. And then there is a time that we pray together. And in doing so, we're not going to be as the hypocrites. We're not going to use vain repetition. We are not going to do that ritualistic thing. We are still praying to the Father. And of course, we see that here. So Jesus begins in that verse 5, saying that when you pray, don't be as the hypocrites are. 
Don't make long, pretentious prayers for the sake of being seen of men, because in doing so, your reward is that you are seen of men. There is no worship of God happening, only worship of yourself. There is no attention being drawn to God, only to yourself. And so, this is your reward. Then Jesus speaks to the contrary. He says, when you pray, go into your closet and pray in secret. And your Father will reward you openly. That word reward meaning give back or recompense. So in this we find two things about prayer. First, prayer is relationship, not ritual. And second, and this is the operative point for our connection with 1 John, when I pray, I am praying expecting to receive something. That my Father, which sees in secret, will reward me openly. Prayer is intended to be engaged with the expectation of receiving. So then Jesus gives another lesson. Again, this becomes a corporate lesson. Calling upon men to pray not through vain repetition, not to simply recite mantras, to repeat things callously, thinking that through sheer repetition of words, through, through, through cold ritualistic engagement, we can coerce or cajole or manipulate God into giving us what we want. That somehow the actual invocation of a specific set of words is what God is looking for, like the pagans do with their witchcraft incantations and rituals. That is not how it works with us. And so Jesus gives us this other lesson. And on the contrary, Jesus puts forth a model of prayer that begins in this way. And this is so important. It begins with our Father. Now, we're not going to walk through that prayer, which is often called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I, I kind of regard John 17 as the Lord's Prayer. I like to call this one the model prayer. We're not going to walk through the model prayer this evening. I've done that before. That's not the focus of our time tonight. But do take note of that beginning. The, relation, the relational and confident manner of approaching God as our Father. We're going to talk a lot more about that next Sunday morning in our parenting series. And, and this message actually has some measure of overlap with next Sunday morning. So what you're getting this evening, you'll get reinforced uh, uh, next Sunday morning to a degree. Of course, it'll be a very different message. But, but we identify that idea that we are praying to our Father and this puts us into a mindset for those of us who understand the relationship between father and child that we've been talking about in Sunday mornings. This puts us into a mindset of confidence and of relationship after which we lay before God our weaknesses, our concerns, and our needs. And as Jesus continues his teaching on prayer later in the Sermon on the Mount, it is that confident relationship of father and son that Jesus appeals to in order to help us orient ourselves properly to the idea. So he would go on to say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, that word there, not being wicked, when we see the word evil in our Bibles, it is not 
to correspond to wickedness as we would think of evil today. It's simply a word that means bad, and it's a very general word for bad. It's, it's a word for deficient in some way. If we being imperfect human things, yes, we are often evil, uh, but we are unrighteous, right? And if we because there's none righteous, no, not one. If we being unrighteous, if we being these mortal fathers know how to give good gifts unto our children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, this is where things get very interesting. In Matthew chapter 6, we are called to be authentic, in a, in a sense, to reject ritualism, to reject fanfare, confident that my father will reward if I seek unto him with a humble heart of trust. And then as we get into Matthew 7 and the teaching in Matthew 7, this idea of confidence really blossoms and takes center stage in our prayers. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. We are seeing a blossoming of this idea of asking and receiving, a confidence of, of, of receiving when I ask, so that when I ask, I, have, I ask with expectation. And where does that confidence come from? Well, it comes from that simple phrase in the model prayer. Our Father. See, there is not a man among us who if his son asked for bread, he would give him a stone. There is not a man among us who if his son asked for a fish, he would give him a serpent. My intentions toward my child are good. I, as a terribly flawed and selfish man, long for my child's wellness and blessing. How much more than the perfect father? That, that desire that wells up inside of me for my child's wellness, that's a reflection of the image of God that is in me. When I feel that desire, when I feel that longing, when I feel that ache to bless my children especially a parent when I can't bless them because they're being little devils. When I feel that ache within me, that's supposed to teach me something about my Father, which is in heaven. It's supposed to teach me about what He feels toward me. As a father, it isn't enough that my child asks However, it's not enough. I can't just say, well, if my child asks, he'll have it. Can I? And this is important. You say, well, pastor, isn't that what the text said? Well, yeah, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna play this out. Okay, so ask and you'll have it. Well, that's easy enough to say. But we do need to gain some perspective. As a father... It isn't enough that my child asks because I love my child too much to give my child whatever he wants. I love my child too much to give my child whatever he wants. My desire to give my child what he wants is deep in me, but it's also directed by the guide rails of what is best for my child. Because if I give my child what he wants to the contradiction of what he needs, if I give my child what he wants to the contradiction of what is best for him, then I am actually not doing what is best for him. And that is what is in my daddy heart. To do what is best for my child. And often, 
what my son asks for, what my daughters ask for, simply not best for them. And so the scriptures continue. And as they do, this theme of asking develops more. So Jesus says in John 14, verses 13 and 14, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we find ourselves later in Jesus' ministry here, and as he teaches about the relationship between the disciple and his Father through the Holy Spirit, he gives the first glimmers of the guide rails that the Father has in his own heart for his children as it relates to asking and receiving. In the same way that I as a Father have guide rails in my life, that are, are guiding the principle of my desire to bless my children as it relates to their prayer request or their request to, to, to receive, we see the first glimmers of this. Whatsoever ye shall ask, Jesus said, in my name. Now, it is from this that we derive the idea that saying in Jesus, uh, this is where we derive the idea of saying in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. So quite regularly, most of us will say, we'll, we'll pray and, and uh, we will say at the end something to the effect of, in Jesus' name we pray. This is where we get that idea. However, what we understand is that by saying in Jesus' name in our prayers, that is not the same thing as praying in Jesus' name. It is a way for us to in a manner that is customary to reflect our desire that the things that we have come to God with, we believe or desire to be in Jesus' name. Now, does the name of Jesus have power? We're talking about that a little bit on Tuesday nights. Anecdotally, from various accounts in history, yes, it would seem as though the name of Jesus in and of itself has some measure of power. But we also know from Acts chapter 19, verse 13, which we'll be studying one of these Tuesday nights, that there were vagabond Jews who were attempting to exercise a demon by invoking Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And they failed miserably at the task. The name Jesus did not exercise power over the demons in that case. We find that even the disciples on one particular occasion sought to cast out a demon and they could not. And Jesus said, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. So we understand that simply saying the name of Jesus is not intrinsically the power of the name of Jesus. Much to the contrary. When we speak of a person's name, it isn't the word or the letters themselves that have the power or that are interesting. But it's the person behind the name. So that when a person says, Legacy Baptist Church... Any power or impact that that name might have is not because, wow, we really chose a good name. But rather, it's because our church has a good name. That the character of the church carries with its label. So that when the name Legacy Baptist Church is spoken, if there's any effect to that name, it's going to be in the testimony that this church has. So that when the name Pastor Wickler is spoken, any effect that Pastor Wickler would have would be in the manner in which I have lived my life before you. The essence of a person's name is his character, his testimony, his works, his legacy. And it's the same idea with Jesus. To pray in Jesus' name is not necessarily about the five letters that make up the moniker Jesus. 
but rather to pray in Jesus' name is to invoke the person and work, to invoke the legacy of what Jesus Christ has done in the manner in which I pray. And this begins to bring a, a thought process about as to what it means that I must pray in Jesus' name to receive. Which means if I start praying for things that are contrary to the person, the character, and the work of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to expect to receive them. If I'm praying for things that are contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles, I am not going to expect to receive that thing. Because I cannot pray for something that is contrary to the teaching of Jesus and his apostles in Jesus' name. I can invoke the name of Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible if I'm praying for things that Jesus, that Jesus has repudiated. And so when I pray in Jesus' name, the idea is that I am aligning myself with who He is and I am coming through His authority to the Father. He, Christ, is the one who has taught me the will of the Father. And so I come aligned with Christ and I have authority to come to the Father through the Son. I invoke His name in that sense to the Father and I say because I am coming through the, the finished work of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ and because I am coming in a manner that is aligned with the way that, that, that Jesus taught, I expect the Father to regard me. I expect the Father to answer. So what does that look like? What does praying in Jesus' name look like? Well, we get a portion of this from James chapter 4, where we read in the first two verses, three verses, excuse me, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Here we find a principle. We're not going to talk about the fighting and warring and such this evening. But we find a principle that James lays out. And that principle is, ye have not because ye ask not. Well, we've already covered that one, right? That prayer is about asking and receiving. But then this second idea. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss. Well, we already see that Jesus tells us that if we ask anything in his name, he'll do it. So if we aren't receiving what we ask for, we are obviously asking in a manner that is not in Jesus' name, regardless of whether we invoke his name or not. And James says that this asking amiss is when we ask in a manner as to consume upon our own lusts. Okay, selfish praying. But that gets a little trickier to decipher. When am I being selfish? One of the amazing things that I run into all the time at the jail when a person accepts Christ as their Savior and they're beginning to work through the early stages of their Christian life is they feel very, very guilty asking anything for themselves. They are very comfortable praying for their family, for their loved ones, for their kids, for whatever it might be, but they are very uncomfortable praying for themselves. Not just a jail person thing. I'm just saying that that's where I interact with, uh, with this on a regular basis. We are, but, but we all can struggle with that from time to time, can't we? And especially when we're young in the faith. Uh, I've known several who, even outside the jail context, who have struggled asking for things for themselves because they feel as though in doing so, they're being selfish. I'm asking for the things that I want. This is natural. This is the essence of asking. Does it mean that I cannot pray for myself? Well, that's how some people take it. 
Consume upon your lust means asking for things for yourself. And there are some Christians who say it that way. Never pray for yourself, only pray for others. But that doesn't really make sense. Throughout the Bible, we see people praying for themselves all the time. We see people asking for their needs all the time. I mean, read the Psalms. David's pretty, pretty prolific in asking God for things. Not to mention when Jesus gives his first instruction on prayer in Matthew 6, the point of that prayer was that in praying secret, God would reward me openly. Not to mention the fact that when we have Jesus' recorded prayers, he prays and asks things for himself. The point of prayer is to receive. And all of this teaching kind of is knit together in 1 John 5. So we find our way back there again. I'm going to read it again, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If we ask anything, 1 John 5 says, according to his will, he hears us. And we have the petitions that we desire of him. And this does put all the pieces together. I am called to ask. I am called to ask with the expectation that I will receive. As Jesus continued, he says, pray in my name. James says, if we don't receive, we don't receive because we're asking amiss that we may consume it upon our own lusts. And then here, John 5 says, if we ask anything according to his will. My confidence in prayer is the confidence of praying for God's will and in God's will. That to pray in such a manner as to receive is to pray according to his will. That is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. To pray according to his will. Okay, so that's the idea. Now, what does it look like? And to understand this, we go back to that picture of the loving father in Matthew 7. I've used this analogy many, many times. It's because it's so potent and so powerful and so true and so easy to see. My child comes to me and asks me for a treat. And my daddy heart desires to bless my child. But I have other questions. How has he behaved today? If I give him a treat, am I going to be encouraging bad behavior because he's been poorly behaved today? How close is it to dinner? If I give him a treat, am I going to ruin his dinner and he's not going to eat the things he's supposed to eat because he's eating this thing that he doesn't need to eat? How many other treats has he had today? That's kind of an important one. Am I going to push my child into a diabetic coma because of the pure number of treats that I've given him today? These are questions I need to ask. Intended to assess whether or not my child's request aligns with my desire for his best good. And if all of my concerns are satisfied, then I'm thrilled to give my child what he asked for. Now, if my child had not asked, it probably would not have been on my mind to give him a treat that day. I'm going along, doing my thing. My son comes up and says, can I have a treat? And I go through the assessment process and I say, you know what, why not? Had he not asked, he would not have received. He asked and he received. Let's go in another direction. My child comes to me and asks me to be clothed and fed. There's no assessment to be made there. 
This is not conditioned upon his behavior demeanor. demeanor. I'm not going to say, sorry, son, you are not well behaved today, so you don't get clothes. Sorry, son, you are not well behaved today, so you're just going to go hungry today. Now, there might be a time where my son was complaining about a meal, so I said, well, why don't you go sit on your bed, and we can try again at the next meal. This plate will still be waiting for you in a few hours. He can go hungry for a couple of hours to learn a lesson. That's a little different. But I'm not going to starve my son when he's asking for food. I love my child. My child will be clothed and fed. There is no scenario where this request conflicts with my will. Maybe his expectations for that request conflict with my will. My son comes up to me and says, Daddy, may I be clothed? And he wants a certain set of clothes, and I give him another set of clothes. He wants a certain thing to eat, and I give him something else to eat. And so he walks away saying, Daddy didn't give me what I wanted. Well, no, but Daddy did give you what you needed. Now, as we think through these scenarios, it becomes apparent that my child will have significantly more confidence asking for clothing and for food than necessarily he will for a treat. However, as my child grows to know me better, to know why I say no treat, the scenarios and the circumstances within which I say no treat, and then when I do say yes, he can better tailor his request to meet what he understands to be my general conditions. He will be well-behaved to add incentive to his request for a treat. He will not ask if it's too close to dinner. He still could ask, but he knows he's going to get a no. So he says, you know what? Instead of asking for something that I know is directly contrary to the will of my father, because I have done this before and I understand that God, that, that, that God or that my father in this case, as we're, we're, we're talking about the, the, the physical realm, that my, because I know that my father does not want to give me a treat too close to dinner, I'm not going to ask him before dinner. I'll ask him after dinner. And he begins to tailor his request because he knows me. And he has learned to align his request with my expectations in order to bring about the most favorable chance for him to receive his request. And as a matter of fact, if I am a consistent father, and if my son knows all of the conditions by which I have and have not granted his requests, then in theory, my son could become 100% accurate and 100% successful in asking and receiving if he understands his father well enough and if his father is 100% consistent. Now, no father is 100% consistent on this earth because there's a day where I'll be grumpy or I'll be busy or I'll be distracted and my son will meet every normal condition for a treat and he'll come down and say, Daddy, may I have a treat? And I'll say, Daddy's busy right now. Please, please leave me alone. You know? And I just move on with my day. And whereas he would normally get a treat if I wasn't busy or distracted, Daddy's busy and distracted right now. But here's the thing. Our, of course, our Heavenly Father is perfect. Our Heavenly Father doesn't get distracted or confused. He doesn't have bad days and good days. He doesn't get grumpy and moody like this Father does. But either way, even with this flawed Father that my son has, he can come to a place of confidence as he grows in his love for me, as he grows in his relationship with me, he can have confidence, not just in the manner in which he should come to me to receive his requests, but he can even, get this, 
He can even have confidence in my refusals. Maybe there's something that he desires. And he comes up to dad and dad says no. As my son understands my love for him, my intentions toward him, my son can walk away from that request saying, well, if daddy said no, I know there's a good reason because I know his love for me. I know his intentions toward me, which means if he said no, I don't want it anymore. And I'm going to walk away with absolute confidence that I have what is best for me in not receiving that thing because God didn't give it to me. If God didn't give it to me, if my father doesn't say yes, there's a reason. Maybe there's something between him, me, the son, and the father. And this no is going to compel me to search out that relationship deeper. Maybe it's because my father knows that what I ask for is not best for me. But one way or another, I walk away with confidence. Knowing that my father has done what is best for me. And resting in that. And this is the confidence that we have in him, John says. This is what John is talking about here. This kind of relationship that as you and I are walking in the spirit, as we are abiding in Christ, as we are doing the things that we are called to do so that we know that we're in a right relationship. We are not separated from the Father. We're not, we, we, we don't have a relationship that is, that is strained with our Father, but we are walking with, with our Father. We are walking in the Son. We are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. The confidence that this instills in me is not just a confidence that I'm born again through the Spirit of God, but it instills a confidence that I have a relationship. And this relationship is operating day by day. And because I have this relationship, because I'm walking with my father, because I know my father's intent toward me, because I'm not grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, because I'm not regarding iniquity in my heart so that the Lord will not hear me, because I am in this place of communication with my God, because there's nothing between us, that then as I bring before God my needs, two things are happening. The first thing is that because I'm walking in the Spirit, I am aligned with God in my spirit. And so the thing I will ask, I have already made sure, is aligned with the will of the Lord as best I know it. And then as I bring before him my needs and my fears and my concerns and my doubts and my shortcomings and my confusions and my insufficiencies, my loving father is willing and able to meet me where I am. And because I'm walking in the spirit... Because I'm abiding in Christ, I know that there's nothing between me and my father which would hinder the open hand of a loving God toward his child. In other words, I know that I have not been misbehaving by which God cannot reward me, right? Give me that treat. Because I'm walking in fellowship with him. Maybe I did misbehave, but I confessed it. He was faithful and just to forgive it. And I'm walking in fellowship again. I'm right with him. And Christian, this is confidence indeed. And this confidence leads inevitably to joy. See, because not only do I have confidence that when I die, I'm going to heaven. 
But I have confidence that when I face the difficulties of this earth, the trials, the tribulations, the confusions, the fears, the stressors, I am walking with my Father, and when I lay those things before Him, if I ask according to His will, He hears me. And I will receive those things that I've asked of Him. Because I know that if I ask for a bread, my Father will not give me a stone. Because I know that if I ask for fish, my Father will not give me a scorpion. Notice what Jesus says in John 16, verse 24. He says, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Here's the link. In 1 John 1, verse 4, John said, I write these things that your joy may be full. And then here at the end, of, in 1 John chapter 5, he says, I write these things to them that believe, that they may know that they believed on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. You ask a loving father who has your absolute best intentions in his mind. You know this because you know God's love for you. You know God's love for you because it was extended in his finished work on the cross, which you have received and you know you've received it because you have his witness in your heart. And as you ask then in Jesus' name, as you ask according to his will, you know that you have what you ask of him. And when you ask, ye shall receive that your joy may be full. And that's the point of 1 John, right? Going all the way back to message number three, something like that. This is the great goal until which we have directed our hearts for the last 29 sermons now. That in this loving relationship between me and God, founded on salvation by grace through faith, rooted in determined obedience to his will, facilitated through a confident relationship of asking and receiving, I live not only in the shadow of the promises of God for the life that is to come, not even in just the expressions of the Spirit of God as he bears his fruit in my life, in my heart, but also in an open line of communication between me and my heavenly Father by which my needs are supplied, my fears are allayed, and my strength is renewed. And perhaps it is to this point that the whole epistle of 1 John hasn't made a whole lot of sense. Perhaps it is that to this point, you're saved and you know it. You're obedient, so you're walking in the Spirit. When you sin, you confess it, you forsake it, you get back into fellowship, and yet that promise of fullness of joy has remained elusive to you. It's still been somewhere in the ether. Let me ask you this, if that's you, if that's you, if you've been working and you've been obedient and you've kept a short sin account and you've brought yourself back into fellowship through confession and you know that you're saved and you're even bearing the fruit of the Spirit but you're still struggling with a measure of joy, let me ask you this, Christian, how's your prayer life? Perhaps it is that you've been living in the hope of the eternal life that is to come but you've not actually been living in the fullness of the power of that eternal life today. And the missing link is that you aren't adequately linked. You spent a lot of time letting God talk to you, but you haven't spent a whole lot of time talking to God. You're seeking the power of the Spirit through the finished work of the Son, but you aren't in close fellowship with the Father. 
Maybe you've got the son down and you've got the spirit down. How's the relationship with the father, Christian? Perhaps it is that your joy is not full because your prayer life is weak. Perhaps your joy is not full because your prayer life is impotent. Perhaps it's because it's non-existent. And if this is you today, may I encourage you to change. To alter what needs to be altered to advance your relationship with the Father by means of a consistent, dedicated prayer life. Prayer is not an easy discipline. Especially in a culture that is so distracted. But it's our link, Christian. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Spend time with God. How much? I don't know. Daily, hourly. Paul says pray without ceasing. Spend the consistent time necessary to bring you to this state. When are you praying enough? Confidence, receiving, joy. Let that be your standard. You have confidence? Are you receiving? You experiencing joy? Let's start there. Spend the consistent time necessary to bring about that place of confidence, the knowledge of the holy, the communion, and the trust. And you might just find that as your time with the Father becomes all the more sweet, as your understanding of your Father grows, of His will, uh, your understanding of His will grows in you, your, your, your confidence grows in the asking and the receiving. It may just be you understand the Father better, you ask, you receive those things which you have asked, and your joy is full. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.